You know, I don't know how many of y'all know this, but everybody hurts, right? Everybody has pain. Do you know any, don't raise your hand or don't point to anybody, but do you know anybody in your life that if you bring up some sort of pain or struggle or physical pain you're having, that they will look at you not really listening, but look at you as though they're going to about to say something of how they're hurting worse than you are? You, know, you don't know anybody like that, do you? Uh, whenever I'm in a conversation and somebody's doing that, it always takes me back to when I was a youth minister teaching sixth grade Sunday school, and they would say prayer requests. My dog is sick. And then somebody else, well, my dog is sick and his paw is hurt. Well, my dog is sick and his paw is hurt and his tail broke off. Well, my dog is sick and his paw is hurt and his tail broke off and my mom is home with a broken leg. It was always one up. Like, my life is worse than your life. Like, you don't have it as bad as I have it kind of a deal. But the thing we've got to understand is everybody has pain. It may differ from person to person. It may be a different experience from one person to another. Their background may frame it in a different way than your background frames it. But everybody's got some sort of pain. Everybody's going through something at the moment or coming from something at the moment or about to go through something at the moment. We can't ever look at somebody and say, well, they have no idea what I'm going through because they don't, their life is so easy and they don't understand. When in reality, in saying that, we don't understand. Because everybody's got pain. It may not be as apparent in some as in others, but everybody suffers. Everybody struggles. That is the defining characteristic of this world going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Everybody has pain because sin came and broke the world. Pain was not God's design. Pain was not God's intention. But when sin entered the world, God's perfect world system broke. And pain came in. Physical pain, yes, but spiritual pain and emotional pain. Far too often, emotional pain is far worse than physical pain. Even though we've experienced, some of us, our fair share of physical pain at times. Some have taken on other people's share of physical pain as well. But the emotional pain can leave deeper rooted and lasting scars. Pain in all forms, is one of the symptoms and side effects, the aftershocks of sin coming into the world. And that's what complicates the matter. As we observe our own painful experiences, we think that our pain, our hurt, our offense is worse than what somebody else is going through. But we all hurt. We all suffer. We all struggle. And as time goes on and we feel like that pain is getting less and less, something inevitably will, you know, surface and cause that pain to be brought back to the forefront of our minds. It may be something small. It may be something big. It could be anything. This past March, I fell off a ladder here at the church and broke my wrist Jared, I see you nodding. Jared was standing right next to me. He saw it happen. Well, he didn't see. He turned around, and I was on the floor, uh, rolling around in agony. Um, and uh, through a process and surgery, and uh, I can't even remember. Katie, do you remember how many screws they put in my wrist? It's, I remember seeing the x-ray thinking, that's a lot more than I thought they were going to put in my wrist. Um, you know, time went on and I stretch it and do all this stuff to try to make it feel better and stretch it out. But then the other day, 
it rained cats and dogs. Anybody remember that just a couple days ago? Okay. Um, anybody have a dog when it rains cats and dogs? Well, I, I, when it rains cats and dogs, and uh, I think of, we have two dogs. One is rather large. He's about this tall. And his shoulders are about that big. He's, he's a, a mini horse. And the other one is a little dog. Well, the big dog is only just about a year old, and he still thinks he's a tiny dog. It reminds me of the old movie. Uh, what was that movie? Um, the Ugly Dachshund, where the Great Dane thinks he's a dachshund the whole movie. That's kind of like our dog. He thinks he's a tiny dog. Uh, but then he goes out in the rain, in the, in the mud, and, and it splashes all over him. And he came in the other day, and I'm wiping him down, trying to, you know, not get mud all over the house. And I realize it's more mud than I can wipe off. So I just wipe his paws off, and I take him to the bathtub, and I'm going to spray him down, hose him down. And he didn't want to be hosed down the other day, uh, Thursday. Uh, he really wanted to enjoy his mud. And so I'm wrestling with him in the tub, and I'm trying to spray him and getting frustrated, and he's doing his deal, and I'm wrestling. i got the, uh, the spray wand in my right hand, and I'm trying to wrestle him with my left hand. And I get done and dry him off and let him go, and I realize all of a sudden my left wrist is hurting quite a bit, uh, having wrestled with that dog in that bathtub. Uh, and it hurt on through about yesterday. It's not really hurting this morning, but on through yesterday, all because I was trying to do something I thought was fine and didn't cross my mind that that would bring the pain back. Sometimes that's the way it occurs in our lives. It'll hurt your ears sometimes. <laughs> that you can be in the middle of one thing and not realize the pain comes back. It could come from what somebody says, not trying to hurt you, but it brings back a memory and the pain resurfaces. Or you could be doing something and that brings back a memory and the pain resurfaces, the hurt, the offense, the, the grief we all hurt, we all suffer, we all struggle. The difference is in how we respond when the pain comes. Look at John chapter 5. John chapter 5. John chapter 5. It's on page 890 if you want to use a Bible on the pew rack. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take one of those pew Bibles with you. Uh, or we have some uh, back in the workroom in the office we can give you as well. Um, but everybody needs a Bible. In John chapter 5, in John chapter 5, Jesus has been doing his ministry now for a little while. Uh, he's been out healing people. He's been out teaching people, pointing people to God, pointing people to the plan of salvation. And then uh, an occurrence happens that happened frequently in the, in the uh, first century Jewish life. There was a festival or a feast. John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, Jews had a whole lot of feasts, a whole lot of festivals. And if they were capable, they were required to go to Jerusalem to participate in that feast, that festival. They didn't, you know, if, if they weren't able to, they weren't able to travel, they'd take care of somebody, they were too far away. Uh, there were ways that you didn't have to go to Jerusalem. But if you were able... It was expected as a Jew you would go to Jerusalem during one of these festival times. And so there was a festival time, a feast, during one of those periods of the year. We don't really know why. John doesn't specify which one it is. But there was one, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. And he takes his entourage with him. He's got his disciples, his 12 guys. He's also got some others who are going with him. Uh, and they head to Jerusalem in the middle of this feast period. Uh, verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem... By the sheep gate, a pool, 
in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. So this pool called Bethesda, some call it Bethsaida, some of the translations say Siloam. Um, this pool, they're, they're, let me kind of give you a description, and then I want to show you some pictures. Um, uh, right outside Jerusalem, they had several gates that went into the city. Uh, outside of one of those gates, John refers to it as the Sheep Gate. Uh, it was a smaller gate. It wasn't massive. It was smaller. Uh, it could fit a person. Uh, it was called the Sheep Gate, we believe, because it was the gate by which the shepherds would enter uh, near the temple and bring the sheep to be sacrificed. So that's why they called it the Sheep Gate. But it was in a part of town that most people didn't go to. Uh, because they didn't like to associate themselves with shepherds. Shepherds were dirty, shepherds were gross, uh, shepherds didn't have the best uh, reputation when it came to w- what was your property. <laughs> uh, and so they said, let the shepherds enter that part of town. We won't go over there. The shepherds can go over there. And so over there in that part of town was this area where there was, they call it the Pool of uh, Bethesda. It's really this massive area. Uh, it was surrounded by Co- uh, these columns that, had, that were covered. And right down the middle of the pools, it was really just two pools, was another area that was a walkway with another colored, uh, c- covered walkway, uh, a columned walkway. So you had columns all the way around, four areas, and then you had one down the middle, five. So you had five columns, uh, colonnades, uh, covered walkways down around this pool. What's interesting about this, I just read an article about this a few weeks ago. You know, archaeologists have just determined the area this was, and they've seen some of the ruins. Uh, well, earlier this year, they were able to get enough permits from enough people. I mean, if you do any archaeological work around Jerusalem, you've got to get authorization from people who hate each other's guts, uh, as these last few days have been, you know, a witness to. Uh, and so they got approval, and they started digging around this area. And they have found this pool of Bethsaida and begun to d- dig out the steps that led down into the pool there. Let me show you some pictures that they've taken. Let's see. You got them, Tony? This is one of the pictures. You can see the steps going down into that, that guy is standing in the bottom of the, where the pool is. And so the steps would go up. Uh, you see one section there, another section, and then another section up top, which is usually where people would lay. And if you look up at the very top, right before the, the canvas roof there, you can see the columns up there. You'll see that kind of way up there at the top. Tony, show that next picture. It's a bigger one. Uh, you can't really see the columns here, but you get, a, get an idea of, of the pool uh, there. And so what people would have to do is go down these three sections of stairs to get down to where the water is, depending on how high the water came up in this pool. Uh, and they're surrounding this, this pool area. Uh, and give you an, illust- an idea of who is there. Look at verse 3. In these, these colonnades, these covered walkway areas, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. What they would do is there was a superstition uh, that an angel would come down, invisible, stir up the waters, and they would begin to bubble. And whoever got into the water first would be healed by this angel. Uh, they've since just, you know, believed in that pool there was a, a spring underneath that would send bubbles to the surface and the people would see the bubbles and get into the water and believe that they would be healed based on this. This was a common superstition of the day. And so you had all these people gathered around this. People, he, John says they're blind, they're lame, they're paralyzed. Uh, people who would come and they would just almost live there in hopeful expectation of being the first ones to get in and be healed. 
They would have been, you know, sick or, or lame or paralyzed or blind, m- many of them, most of their lives. And they would never want to leave their place next to this pool for fear that someone else would come and take their place. So they wouldn't want to go to the bathroom. They would just stay and go to the bathroom where they were because they just wanted to get in first. So this area was, was gross. It was nasty. And so that's why this was on that side of Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, where nobody wanted to go anyway. So what does Jesus do when he's coming into town? He goes by the area of town. Nobody wants to go. Look at verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now I want to point out real quick, the life expectancy back then was just over 40 years. So this man has been sick longer than most people back then have been alive. It says he's been an invalid for 38 years. It's been with him nearly four decades. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? So Jesus approaches Jerusalem, not from the regular area. He approaches Jerusalem from that side of town, and he intentionally walks through this area where the the pool of Bethsaida was. He walks through it, through the mess, through the muck, through the gross Maybe he says, talks to some people along the way, but he makes a beeline for this guy because it says Jesus knew he had been there a long time. Jesus, supernaturally, he's Jesus. He knows everything. He walks up to this man and he asks him this question. It's a very important question. Do you want to be healed, he says. Do you want to be healed? Now, the man doesn't yet know who Jesus is. The man doesn't even know what Jesus is asking by this question. Because look at the man's response. Verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. It's very telling in what the man says. He says, I have no one. I have no one. So he is of a certain health status that he's not able to get into the pool under his own strength very well. The implication is almost crawling or rolling. He can't get up fast enough to get into the pool before somebody else. And his family isn't there to help him. His friends aren't there to help him. So he must not, his family maybe abandoned him. Maybe his friends, maybe he doesn't have any friends anymore. Because nobody's there to help him. He says, I have no one. So his response to Jesus, saying, do you want to be healed? His response to Jesus was really was what everyone had told him he needed to do. Everyone in the culture, everyone in the world had told him, you got to get in the water. That's the only way you can be healed. Maybe you tried all the doctors. Maybe you tried all the homeopathic stuff. None of it's works. The only way you can be healed is to get into that water. The world told him this. Maybe his family told him this. Maybe his friends told him this. This superstitious gamble was all he had left. And he's telling Jesus, the, I, the only way I can be healed is get in that water. I've got nobody to help me get in that water because everybody else, they're not as sick as I am, so they can get in the water faster. And so I'm still sitting here sick in the, 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 the gross, and I cannot get in. The broken world has told this man what he was supposed to do. 
The broken world told the man what he was expected to do. Get in that water. So here he's doing what he's been told to do, and he can't find relief. He can't find any relief from where he is. And the natural question that springs from that in relation to us, in relation to you, is where do we turn when what we try doesn't permanently remove the pain? Where do we turn when what we're trying doesn't permanently remove the pain? When we're doing what everybody told us to do, when we're doing what everybody expects us to do, maybe because of how we're raised or the community we're in or the culture we're in, and we're doing the thing that we were told to do that they told us, this is what you have to do, and we're doing it, and the pain keeps coming back. Maybe it numbs the pain for a little bit, but the pain is still there. Whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, whether it's spiritual, it's, it's lasting and it's not going away. It's always bubbling right below the surface, ready to come out. And at any moment, somebody pops that bubble and it just spills out on everything. And Jesus is still asking us the same question he's asking this man. Do you want to be healed? So the man says, I can't get in the water, so I can't be healed. We also know... By this man's response, he has no idea who Jesus is. He didn't know who Jesus is. Maybe he's heard about some guy out in the wilderness healing people, but he didn't know that Jesus is who he is. He has no idea. So Jesus responds to this man and says to him in verse 8, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Jesus heals the man completely. And so because Jesus healed the man, the man was willing to do whatever Jesus, the healer, told him to do. He said, get up, take up your bed, and walk. So the man can, can now again, we don't know a whole lot about his ailment, but we see this in other instances that if he hasn't really walked in 38 years, his legs would have shriveled up, atrophied. Muscles gone. All of a sudden, not only do the muscles come back, but the muscle memory that has never been there is now there. And the man gets up, picks up his mat, his bedroll, and he walks. And he celebrates. He can do what he could not do moments before, all because Jesus healed him. The world had told the man what he needed to do. Go to the water. Water didn't heal him. Jesus did. So he's willing to do whatever Jesus told him to do because Jesus healed him. But that also begs the question for us. Are we willing to do whatever Jesus would have us do because of what he's done for us in his death and resurrection? Jesus heals the man. But there was a problem, as you see there at the end of the verse. I hadn't read that yet. In, in Jesus' healing of the man, it says, Now that day was the Sabbath, the Sabbath day, holy day. For them, it was Saturday. Now, you may know some a little bit about Jewish Sabbath. Uh, you know, God in the Old Testament, in the law, had told the Jews, keep the Sabbath day holy. And he gave a, a little bit of regulation of what that was supposed to look like so that that day uh, was supposed to be a day of worship, was supposed to be a day of honoring the Lord, so it wasn't supposed to look like every other day. The intention was for the benefit of the people that they wouldn't kill themselves, working themselves into the ground. 
as Jesus tells us uh, later on in the Gospels. But some of the Jewish leaders saw Jesus's, or, or the Lord's instruction in the law, and they took that and they added a bunch of buffer rules around that, saying there's certain things you're not allowed, some specific things you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath. You can't do X, you can't do Y, you can't do Z, and some of those rules of these, that these men set up that God didn't set up, some of the rules they set up were you can't carry your bedroll on the Sabbath. And here's this man, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Jesus actually told him, pick up your bedroll and walk. They're, they're right next to Jerusalem. I mean, the sheep gate is a stone's throw from where Jesus is standing in the middle of the pool of Bethesda. The temple just on the other side of the wall, other side of the gate. So the priests would have been able to see, the religious leaders, Pharisees, would have been able to see through the gate where they're receiving the sheep, would have been able to see the pool. And they see this man walking around carrying his bedroll on the Sabbath. And some of them take it as their own personal responsibility to make sure everybody follows the rules. You break the rule, I'm jumping down your throat. I know y'all don't know anybody like that, right? You break, get one toe out of line, and they're just jumping down all over you. I can't believe you would do that. Well, here the religious leaders see this man carrying his mat. Verse 10, and they confront him. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. It's not lawful. Now, they're using that word to mean something that God put in place, when in reality, it's something that man put in place. They're equating man's rules with God's direction. They're telling him, okay, I get that you're healed, but how you're going about your life now that you've been healed is wrong. The world had told the man what he had to do to be healed, and the religious leaders had told the man how he was supposed to be healed. Fine, not on the Sabbath. Uh, you, you, can't be, you can't be healed in that way. You had, to be, you had to be healed in a certain way. That's the only way it's acceptable at all is if you take care of it in a very specific, specific way. Now, the problem with that, and Jesus confronts these guys later on, is they violated their own rules to benefit them. The point that Jesus brings up when he confronts the actual religious leaders later on, he says, don't you guys take your donkeys out to drink on the Sabbath? If you have an ox and it falls in a ditch, aren't you going to go get your, your ox out of the ditch on the Sabbath? That's a violation of your own rules. You're breaking your rules to fix an ox. You're breaking your rules to take care of your donkey. Aren't people more valuable than animals? And so Jesus says, it, it, it's, you're missing the point of the Sabbath in trying to restrict people from being healed in such a way, from celebrating what God has done in such a way. This man is still dancing around, confronted by the Pharisees, confronted by the religious leaders. What you're doing is wrong, verse 11. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So we get a picture here of this man who did not believe. Now many times when Jesus heals somebody, he says, your faith 
has made you well. They believed that Jesus could do it. They believed in Jesus as the Son of God, able to heal them. But now Jesus goes to this guy who is very clearly not a believer. He's a believer in superstition. Jesus goes to this guy and heals him. Guy has no idea who Jesus is. And Jesus heals him anyway. Goes and heals this man. And then disappears into the crowd. Jesus goes and doesn't want, uh, we're going to see, Jesus is going to care more about this man's individual, eternal destination than the attention of other people. Look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, a couple things I want to point out there. First, Jesus finds him in the temple. A man who was of his, the, the man, the sick man, who was of his demeanor, his sickness, would not have been allowed in the temple to begin with. So this man could not go in the temple for 38 years, which is where the Jews had been taught God's presence resided. So for 38 years, he was not allowed, from what they believed, to be in the presence of God. Jesus heals him, and where's the first place he goes? The temple, presence of God, as in his understanding. And so Jesus seeks him out in, the, in their temple, you know, the temple back then, it was massive, so thousands of people. And in that crowd of thousands, Jesus, again, makes a beeline for this man. And Jesus makes himself known. And it would seem from what Jesus says, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. You can read that and maybe interpret that Jesus is saying, this man was sick because he sinned, but that's not what Jesus is saying. The man did have a physical ailment, yes. But Jesus is speaking of a spiritual issue here. He's saying, repent from what your life could be, from what your life has been. Repent. Don't follow the life of sin. Because if you follow a life of sin, something worse will absolutely happen to you. Something worse than being sick for 38 years down at that pool of Bethesda. Something worse as an eternal punishment. Don't follow a life of sin. Follow me, is what Jesus is telling him. Jesus is giving him the plan of salvation. Repent and follow Jesus. Repent and believe in Jesus. He says, okay, sin no more. Don't follow that lifestyle. Follow me, is what Jesus is telling the man. Jesus is more concerned with the man's physical healing, I mean, with the man's spiritual healing than his physical healing. That's why Jesus didn't just leave the man, didn't just say, okay, I healed you, you're good, and, and Jesus walked off. No, Jesus went to the man and said, the reason this happened is because of who I am. The reason this happened is because I am the Son of God. Jesus points out a spiritual reality to the man, having healed him, having taken care of taken care of him the people had told the man what to do the religious people had told the man how he was supposed to do but really the only way for the man to be healed the only way for the pain of this world to be healed is for him to turn to the one who heals turn to the one who heals very often when Struggles come, difficulties come, pain arises. We know we should turn to Jesus, but we turn to other things. We turn to things that don't heal. We turn to things that numb. We turn to things that distract from the reality that we need Jesus. 
And so we turn to something that can, you know, distract our mind from the reality of the problem, or we, we turn to a substance or a drink or, or a drug that takes it away momentarily but doesn't heal it because the pain is still there. The reality of the pain is still there, and we've got to get more to numb it some more. And Jesus healed this man so that he's got no more pain. Jesus can heal us in a way that that other stuff doesn't even have a shot at taking care of. Because that stuff doesn't heal. It doesn't heal. It doesn't relieve the pain permanently. Only the healer heals. And we can turn to a myriad of other things, but we won't find healing until we turn to the healer. That doesn't mean we won't still experience pain and struggle and difficulty. It will still come. Jesus told us that in John 16. In this world, you will have trouble. It will be here. As long as this broken world exists, pain will exist. And we're not promised a world free of it until revelation comes and this world is done away with. And then we will get a new world with no more pain, no more tears, no more grief. But we have to turn to the healer. Only the healer heals. And any healing received is brought by his hand. God can use any means to bring healing. Any healing that comes, comes by his hand. The healer heals. How we respond to the pain, where we turn when the pain arises, really demonstrates our heart and who we have faith in or what we have faith in. I read this week about Harriet Tubman. You know much about Harriet Tubman? She was a slave in the 1800s. As a child, as a slave, she was beaten frequently, uh, mistreated very frequently. Uh, when she was still a child, but growing up, uh, maybe young teens, maybe older, uh, uh, preteen, somewhere in there, uh, the owner of the slaves was having himself a temper tantrum, picked up this uh, lead weight. They don't really say what it was, but it was some kind of a solid lead weight, and he chunked it at one of his slaves. He wasn't very good at his aim, and he hit Harry Tubman in the head as a young child, causing her uh, some brain issues. And she had those issues that, for the rest of her life, she had frequent headaches, like debilitating headaches. And they said at times when she would go to sleep, they wouldn't be able to wake her up because of the brain injury that was still there from when she was a child. And she would sleep for an extended period of time. Uh, uh, what do they call it? Uh, hypersomnia is what they called it, like extra sleep instead of insomnia, hyper, uh, too much. And she experienced this, this, and she experienced this pain. She experienced seizures for the rest of her life as a result of this. But in the midst of that pain and that struggle, she turned to God. And she began to pray in a way she never had before. And in the midst of those prayers, God gave her a vision and a purpose. And she escaped slavery. But having escaped slavery, she felt deeply convicted. And she went back to that plantation 13 times over the coming months and rescued her family. 70 members of her family, she got out of slavery because of what God had put on her as a result of her constant pain. And then the Civil War broke out. 
And she was relied upon by Abraham Lincoln to help. She was the first woman to lead a, a, a military battle. And she went in armed and led the fight. And you know how many slaves she freed that time? 700. And it all originated with this pain that she experienced constantly. And in the midst of her constant pain, she turned to God, and God did something nothing else could. None of the substances could bring healing. None of the outflows that some of the other people had tried to give her didn't bring healing. She turned to God, and God provided something that never would have been there otherwise. God provided not just for her, but because she turned to God, she changed the lives of untold number of people. I mean, 70 members of her family, 700 slaves she freed, 770 people. Imagine the generations that have been impacted because one person turned to Jesus. So when it comes to your pain, everybody's got it. Where do you turn? Do you turn to distraction? Do you turn to something to try to numb it? Do you lash out and try to make somebody else hurt because you're hurting? Or do you turn to Jesus to find healing, to find strength for today, for tomorrow? Do you maybe, do you come to the realization that when somebody lashes out at you, maybe they're not lashing out at you, maybe they're lashing out because they're in pain and they need help. So rather than lashing back, how do you respond to their pain? Jesus took this man and brought healing. How do we respond to pain, our own or somebody else's? And so I want to speak to two people, two kinds of people today. First, are any of you in pain right now? Any kind of pain? I'm about to, I'm going to ask that non-rhetorically because I'm going to pray for you. You don't have to specify the kind of pain. We're not going to have a testimony. I'm hurting because of this, and I'm hurting because of that. I'm hurting because that person across the room said such a... We're not doing that right now. Y'all can deal with that another time. James chapter 5, confess to one another. But if you are experiencing any kind of pain whatsoever, I want you to stand up, and I'm going to pray for you. Right now, if you have any kind of pain, physical pain, emotional pain, childhood pain, a struggle, any kind of pain. It's good. Some of you are avoiding my eyes because you know you're hurting too. You just don't want to stand up in church. That's weird. We're Baptists. We don't do that. Let me pray for you. God, I thank you. I thank you for your healing, your healing hand. You demonstrate with this guy at the pool of Bethesda. But you don't heal just physically. You heal spiritually. You heal in a way that lasts. God, I don't know the pains that are going through the lives of these standing or the lives of those who didn't stand. We know we all have pain. But God, you know the pain. God, I pray that you would intercede on their behalf. You would give them strength to stand up under the pain. You would give them sufficient grace, as you promised Paul, 
And God, I pray that as your will warrants, you would bring phenomenal healing. Phenomenal healing in a way that can only bring about the credit being given to you. God, I pray for your healing hand to be laid upon these people. And the way forward be with this whole group of people turning to you in the midst of their pain and seeing what you can turn their lives into as a result of them turning to you for healing and not other stuff, not numbness, not distraction, but turning to you for true deliverance. God, I thank you for their transparency. I pray you would bring healing even today. In your name I pray, amen. Y'all have a seat. Now maybe, maybe you don't know Jesus and you're like this man and you've been turning to all kinds of other areas to try to find healing, but what you really need is you need Jesus who's coming to you and saying, do you want to be healed? Do you want salvation? Do you want eternal life? Maybe that's what you need today. And you came to church for whatever reason, but Jesus is calling out to you, and you haven't yet believed in him. You've heard about him maybe, you've thought about him, but you've never been confronted by him. Well, Jesus brought you here for that specific reason today, to believe, to stop putting it off, stop arguing, stop saying maybe another time, maybe some other deal, maybe next time I'll bring somebody with me. He's calling you out today. Will you believe in Jesus, that he's the son of God, that he died so all your sins would be forgiven? And then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. Will you believe today? Stop the delay tactics. Stop putting it off. Believe in him. Believe in him. We got a brand new Bible for you. We want you to walk out the door with. You believe in Jesus. Will you accept Jesus and believe him today? So just as I asked if you had pain, I'm asking you now, will you believe in Jesus? I'm going to pray. Music team's going to sing. I'll be here at the front. Jared will be at the back. Come and talk to one of us and say, I I want to believe in Jesus. I want to believe in Jesus. I want to find relief from that pain. Will you believe today? 